Good morning. So uh, like any family, my family has, you know, stories that are, that are uniquely ours that get brought up. Uh, and for us, one of them involves mowing the lawn. Only recently realized, like, I'm a perfectionist. And as I look back on my childhood, I realized that my dad used that to his advantage by having me mow the lawn because I'm, like, just perfectionist enough that it's like, if I'm going to have to do it, I mean, I'm going to complain. I'm not going to want to do it. But if I'm going to do it, like, I'm going to do this thing. And he loved that I would cut like these great lines into the lawn and like just make it look, you know, li- like the yard lines, liars. I see your yards. I know you like them. <laughs> like, and I'd cut shapes in and like just make it, de- like I love doing that. And so it's this tension between I'm a perfectionist. It's like, I, I'm going to do it. I need to do it. And I would just get super bored. And so what I would figure out how to do is, you know, that little safety bar that's like supposed to like have your hand on in case something happens. Like, yeah, you tie that thing down, like tie that thing down. And then I find a way to like loop in the, the little uh, lever for the, for the wheels to go. So like I, all I'd have to do is kind of put my elbows on it. And I borrowed my brother's Game Boy. If you're under the age of 25 and you're wondering what a Game Boy is, this is a Game Boy. I'm going to show you a picture. That's a Game Boy. Uh, and if you're thinking, gosh, that looks like my phone, only worse in every way, yes. That's because this story takes place in the dark ages before an iPhone. But this was a device that you could play games on. And it was monochromatic. But then when they came up with color, it was like, oh, color, this, it's incredible on this inch and a half screen. So I borrowed my brother's Game Boy. And I, what I did is like, I rigged this thing up. And I put my forearms on it. And I'd play the Game Boy as I pushed the lawnmower around the yard so that I you know, like could be, not be bored while I did this. Now that we had a short, steep driveway. And as as we get to this driveway, I kind of had to like back the lawnmower down, and so I tucked the uh, Game Boy into the waistband of my shorts. My shorts didn't have pockets. I don't know why. Why they, would they make shorts without pockets? I don't know, but they did, and I was wearing them. And as you can probably imagine, as I'm pulling it backwards, the Game Boy is slipped out of my shorts, and before I noticed it, I pulled the lawnmower back over it and just Game Boy guts everywhere. <laughs> I felt very, very bad. That's how the story happened. My brother's version is slightly different. My brother's version is I was mad at him for some arbitrary and unfair reason, and so I stormed inside, and I took his Game Boy, and I was like, that's it, and I pull out the lawnmower, and I rev that thing up, and I throw it down, and I'm just like, how you like that, Christian? How you like that? That is not how it happened. But sometimes those stories take on a life of their own, and they're hard to let go of. My brother told this story at my wedding rehearsal. (laughs) We have a hard time letting go of those things. Sometimes we tell ourselves a story over and over again, and that story becomes real in our minds, and our version becomes the real version. We're going to continue our series on purpose, looking at the life of Joseph, and looking at a similar idea, things that are hard to let go of. How do we let go of those things? We're going to pick up the story where we left off last week. Joseph was in prison, and he had been freed finally to become the second most powerful man in Egypt. And the visions that God had given the Pharaoh that Joseph had interpreted had come true, that there had been seven years of abundance where they stored up all this extra grain to prepare for the seven years of famine that were coming. There was a massive food shortage in this area. Massive food shortage. And Genesis 42 and 43, what we're looking at this morning, start with a new set of people. Now, they've been part of the story the whole time, but we haven't really talked to them. We haven't really gotten to hear from them. Joseph's family is where we start chapter 42. Joseph's dad, Jacob, says to his 
Joseph's brothers, hey, what are you guys doing? We need food. Go to Egypt. I've heard they have food there. Go get some grain, otherwise we'll die. And so the father sends these brothers to Egypt. They go down and they end up in front of Joseph because Joseph is the guy in charge of this. Now, Jacob wouldn't let his brothers take Benjamin with them. Benjamin is the youngest, right? Jacob wouldn't let them take Benjamin because Jacob's already let these guys take out his youngest son. And that didn't turn out so well because they didn't come back with him. Uh, They told him that Joseph had died. Really, they'd sold him into slavery. And so he said, no, you can't take Benjamin, but the rest of you go. And so they arrive in Egypt and they fall on their faces before Joseph and he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him which I think makes sense because they're not ever expecting to see him ever again, right? He's probably changed in his position. He's not uh, this farmer or shepherd. I mean, he is the second most powerful man in Egypt, probably looks pretty good, little gym membership, some nice clothes. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And it says he pretends to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. He's like, where are you from? And so they tell him, And in this moment, the writer tells us that Joseph remembered the dreams that he'd had years before, that literally this moment, he had a dream about, that his brothers are bowing down before him. I mean, this is what got him in trouble with his brothers in the first place, that first dream he had about their sheaves of grain bowing down before him. It's literally happening now. He starts interrogating them. He says, you're spies. You've come to see how vulnerable the land has become. And they're like, no, 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 no. We, we, just, we just came to get food. Like, that's it. He's like, yes, you are. You're spies. And he begins to, to interrogate them about their family. Tell me more about where you're from, about your family. And they're like, there's 12 of us. That, that we have our youngest brother back in our homeland. And then there's one other brother who's no more. I think Joseph's probably pretty familiar with that brother. <laughs> they're talking about him. He begins to interrogate them further. You must be spies. And he says, you will never leave Egypt. I swear by the life of Pharaoh, which was this common way to, uh, to make a promise, right? But I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you'll never leave Egypt unless your youngest brother comes here. And he throws them in prison for three days. Initially, he says, one of you may go back. I'm going to keep the rest of you. But he changes his mind. He says, all right, one of you stays. The rest of you go back. If you really are honest men... You'll bring your youngest brother back to me and prove to me that you're not spies. And what I find fascinating is that they begin to talk amongst themselves and they say, clearly we're being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. And that's why we're in this trouble. And the oldest brother, Reuben, says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. And now we have to answer for his blood. This secret that they've kept for 20 years, they feel like is being exposed. First thing that we're going to take away from the story is that guilt and shame poison you. Guilt and shame poison you. As soon as something bad happens, the brothers bring up this story. Nobody else mentioned Joseph. Nobody else mentioned what had happened. They bring it up themselves. In fact, they even say later on in Genesis 42, 28, Look, he exclaimed to his brothers, they're on their way home, right? And they get this sacks of grain and they open it up and one of them finds his money pouch in in the sack of grain. And it says, my money has been returned. It's here in my sack. Then their hearts sank, trembling. They said to each other, what has God done to us? They have a sense that their sin of the past is coming back to haunt them. There is going to be a reckoning for what they've done. 
No one says it explicitly, but I think we can tell by how quickly they jump to this, that this is something that is weighed on their hearts, that they have thought of every day of their life since that moment. They have to go back to their father and tell them that they left one of their brothers, that Simeon isn't with them. What's their plan? I mean, are they going to like gaslight Jacob and be like, what, J Simeon? Who's this Simeon you speak of? Nope, it's only been us brothers the whole time. I don't know what you're talking about. You must be getting old. Time to put him in a home. Like, what was, like, he's not going to notice? Like, hey, isn't there one less of my children that I sense? Then they have to come clean that Simeon has been left, and Jacob is distraught by this. I mean, he is just overwhelmed. Imagine the worst moment of his life is happening again. Jacob says, you are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. And so he says, no, you will not take Benjamin down with you. His brother Joseph is dead. He's all that I have left. Jacob is being confronted with the worst moment of his life. Because folks, the brothers never told anybody what happened. They never told anybody. Their shame and their guilt has weighed on them for 20 years. They never came clean. They lied to Joseph about Joseph's own story. I find it fascinating, though, that Joseph would ask about their family and they would voluntarily mention the one who's no more. Why? Why, why bring that up? I think because the weight of what they've done has been pressing on their hearts for a long time. They've never been able to escape that. The brothers couldn't run from their sin. The brothers couldn't run from their shame, their guilt, their regret, because that stuff always comes back. I mean, it always comes back. Joseph's not the only person in this story who spent time in prison. His brothers have been in a different kind of prison for 20 years. This is like a real and a much more serious version of like how every teen horror movie starts out. Right? There's like a bump and then everybody gets together. Let's make a pact. We'll never speak about this again. Surely nothing bad will happen to us over the next 93 minutes. <laughs> Pretending something isn't real, folks, doesn't make it less real. Pretending something didn't happen doesn't mean it didn't happen. Guilt and shame will poison you. They will eat away at you from the inside. We can never escape those things. What do you do if you get bitten by a poisonous snake? What do you do? I mean, even if you're an indoorsman like me, like you, we've heard these things, what do you do? What do you do? You suck the poison out, right? That's what you're supposed to do. Like you make a little incision and suck the poison out. First of all, that's one of the reasons I don't go outdoors. <laughs> but I actually, in 2002, the New England Journal of Medicine published a study that said you shouldn't suck the poison out. It's actually really, really ineffective. They came up with several steps you should take, and all of them are to prevent the poison spreading, like keep the injury below your heart and, and don't do any strenuous activity. All of that stuff is really geared to get you to the one thing that will help, which is expert medical attention. Your friend sucking the poison out of your leg doesn't do anything except end your friendship with that person. <laughs> it's not ever going to be the same. I'm sorry. You're just like, thank you for saving my life. We've had a good run, so I'll just never see you again. We don't need to just figure this out ourselves because if we can't remove the poison, not just slow it, but remove the poison, it will kill us. The brothers have been trapped by this. And sometimes we feel trapped by guilt and shame. Sometimes it's something we've done. Sometimes it's something that's, that's been done to us. 
but that guilt weighs on our hearts and it messes with us. We can't run from that, though. We can't run from sin and shame and guilt and regret. It will always come back. It's not a good thing. The presence of guilt and shame in our life is the residue of poor decisions by someone. But it doesn't mean that God can't use that, right? Because God can use that guilt to prompt us to respond to him, which is what we see here with the brothers, the fact that their minds go so quickly to this. I think God is using this to prompt them to respond to him, to deal with this. Are you responding? Are you responding to God? There's a lot of bad ways to deal with guilt and shame. There's a lot of bad ways. It's a popular song that says, it's too late to apologize. To which I would say, no, that's terrible advice. That is literally the worst advice you could give someone. Oh man, I I hurt someone. Well, it's too late to apologize. Sorry about that. No. Or sometimes you'll hear people say, well, loving someone means not having to say you're sorry. To which I would say, what's wrong with you? Seriously, that that is terrible advice. Loving someone means having to say you're sorry all the time because it means you care about them and you care about that relationship and you care about their feelings and you wanna own what you've done so that you can keep short accounts so that you can work things out so that you can pursue resolution. The way that, that we deal with guilt and shame is not pretending it didn't happen, is not ignoring it, is not hoping it'll go away on its own because let me tell you now, it will not. We deal with it through confession, through owning it, through apologizing, through coming clean. I can't tell you the number of stories that I've heard people say when their deepest, darkest secret came to light, the thing that they were most terrified about, when it came to light, they were actually relieved. Because living the lie is so much harder. It's exhausting. Guilt and shame poison us. They'll kill us from the inside out, and that's what they've been doing to the brothers for 20 years. Eventually, this family needs food again, and perhaps they remembered their brother that they left in in prison. I don't know. Oh, right, Simeon, right. Maybe we should go get him. So they go back, and this time they have to bring Benjamin. And they go down, and they see Joseph. His steward invites them into this party. He's like, hey, come in. We're going to we're going to have this huge meal, this feast. And they start thinking, uh-oh, this, this can't be good. I mean, this, this can't be a good thing. W- what's going on with this? But Joseph invites them in and he celebrates with them and they have this huge meal. And it's like, what, what's, what's going on in this story? Why is Joseph acting this way? Like his dream had come true. His brothers were bowing down to him. I mean, this thing had, had actually happened. But we see in in chapter 42 that his brother was harsh with them and accused them of being spies and then tricked them by putting their money back in their bags. I mean, like, what's going on? He threw them in prison for three days. I mean, he he kept Simeon in jail the whole time. Like, he made them leave a brother there. What's he doing? Imagine you're Joseph. Imagine you've come face to face with the people who have hurt you the most. Imagine, unexpectedly, you come face to face with the people, with the person who is responsible for your deepest hurt, your deepest pain. What must that have been like? What must that have been like? We don't really know why Joseph responded that way. There's a lot of room in this story. The the, the writer's not super clear. I think that's on purpose because I, 
I think we can take a bunch of things away from this. I think for one reason, I think there's a flavor of letting the brothers experience what they put Joseph through, putting them in jail for three days, accusing them of being spies when they weren't spies. I mean, Joseph knows false accusations all too well. Joseph spent time in prison. Joseph knows what it's like to be put in a position where, where the one is forgotten by the many. I think there's also this idea that Joseph's testing them. When I read this at first, it's like, why wouldn't he just reveal himself? Why wouldn't he say, hey guys, it's me. Remember that brother that you uh, sold into slavery and then lied to dad about and said I had been killed? And I'm here. I think it, it's possible that Joseph doesn't know that that murderous rage in their heart He doesn't know that it's not still there. That those feelings that caused them to do this horrible thing to begin with, that they don't still feel that way. But in keeping with the larger theme of Joseph's story, I think what's clear is that God is definitely at work behind the scenes. That Joseph serves as a God-like character in forcing them to confront their own sin because we know that his heart changes towards them. Because the second thing we're going to take away from this story is that forgiveness and surrender heal you. Forgiveness and surrender heal you. Think of the stuff that Joseph's been through. He's finally confronted with the people who hurt him the most and he is in a position of authority to do whatever he wants to them. Think about that. Joseph's had many, many chances for revenge, but he's chosen to forgive and release those injuries. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, who falsely accused him, the cupbearer who promised to remember him and left him in prison, and now his brothers. Because Joseph gets something different. We see his heart change towards them. In Genesis 42, 24, it says, Now he turned away from them and began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. He began to weep. Why would he turn away and weep? Why would he turn away and weep? In Genesis 43, it says, Joseph hurried from the room when they were having this big party. It says he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into his private room where he broke down and wept. After washing his face, he came back out, keeping himself under control. He had to keep himself under control. There's a lot of emotion here. Remember, we get a glimpse of what this was like for him. When the brothers say, We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. This isn't a fairy tale. This is a real story. And Joseph was begging his brothers, guys, please don't do this. Please don't do this. And making these cries as they walk away, as they sell him into slavery and now face to face with them. What we see in his heart though is he had already forgiven them. The only way he could possibly interact with the people that have hurt him the most is to have forgiven them in his heart before this moment came. He wept because he cared for them. In Genesis 41, we see he'd moved on from his family. He had forgotten them. But when he sees them, all those feelings come flooding back. He wept because he understood what they must be going through because he went through it himself. He wept because this was an emotional thing. This was a heavy thing for him. Joseph could easily have turned bitter, could easily have turned angry, could easily have exercised his revenge on his brothers, and yet he didn't because he knew that surrender and forgiveness are the only way he's going to be healed. It's the only way. Imagine coming face to face with the person who hurt you the most. I mean, it's easy for us to theorize how we would respond, right? 
But how we would actually respond is an entirely different thing. How do you forgive someone who hurt you deeply? How do you move past something that has defined your life for so long? How do you do that? What Joseph understood is that forgiveness is wiping the slate clean. It's canceling a debt, but there's more to it. It's not just that. It also means giving up your right to be angry or hurt. It means giving up your right to those things. It means saying, not only am I saying we start fresh, but it says, I am choosing to not remember what you've done. I am choosing to start over. You know why we say forgive and forget? Because we don't forget well. Forgetting is a key part of forgiveness. When we see God talk about forgiveness, forgetting is a piece of that. Our sin, when it's removed from us, is gone. We have to add in forget because we're bad at it. Because what we do is forgive and remember. We forgive and remind. We forgive and bring up again at a moment of convenience for us. But Joseph chose to give up his right to be angry, chose to give up his right to to be hurt by this. He chose to surrender those things. That's the hard part. That's what we struggle with. Ten years ago, I was miserable. I was working at this church that I loved, and the church had gone through a lot of turmoil and and leadership shakeup at the top, and we were left with a guy in charge who was just not a fan of mine, and I'm not totally sure why. I mean, I'm charming. What's up with that? He would go out of his way to be miserable. He would lie about me and about stuff in public. He would uh, change his mind. He, he embarrassed my wife one time publicly for something that was not her fault at all. And I was angry. I mean, first I was hurt, right? First I was hurt. And then I was frustrated. And that frustration turned into anger. And then that anger hardened into bitterness that put down deep roots in my heart. Because I wondered, God, I work at a church. How could you let this happen? Like, you know this isn't right. Some of his staff would say, I don't know why he's doing this to you. I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on. It was the emperor has no clothes. Everybody knew it was an issue, but nobody would deal with it. And I bore the brunt of it, and I was miserable, and I got angry, and I couldn't talk about it without getting more and more upset because it burned in my heart, and I didn't want to let go of it. It took me years to work through that. You know why? Because the only thing that I could do was be angry. That's the only thing I could do. The only thing I could do was refuse to let go. In my mind, it was like I can show him how awful he's been by being mad about this. Now, I would, maybe wouldn't have said those words, but that's really functionally how I was living. And you know what the problem with that thought process is? He didn't know or care. When we hold on to things like that, what we do is we poison ourselves, and the other person doesn't even know. I felt like if I held on to this that I could somehow make him suffer and that's such a foolish thought. Number one, that's, that's terrible and incredibly mean-spirited that I would even think that, but also he didn't even know. I began to feel God working on my heart going, you gotta let this go. I mean, I was miserable, right? I didn't enjoy this feeling, but I wouldn't let go of it because it's all I had. I couldn't control that situation, but I could control my feelings. I didn't want to let it go, but I just felt God chipping away going, you need to surrender this. You need to give this up. 
And then we begin to say those things about forgiveness that we do when someone hurts us, right? Well, I'll forgive him when he asks for it, right? I'll forgive him when he deserves it. You know the problem with that attitude? God never once says that to us. God never once says to you, I will forgive you when you've earned it. I will forgive you when you deserve it. I will forgive you when you ask for it. Instead, God says, I forgive you before you've earned it or asked for it. I forgive you because of who I am, not because of who you are. If God's requirement for forgiveness is simply receiving it, how in the world can I make my threshold higher? I just felt God chipping away at that thing that I didn't want to let go of, prying my fingers off of this thing until eventually when the church sent elders to meet with Bethany and I years later to say, listen, we are sorry. We mistreated you and we need to apologize. I was actually able to say, I'm okay. For the love, please hear me, that's not because I'm this incredibly spiritual person who really has this thing figured out. That's because God said, we're going to do this, Josh, and we're going to do it the hard way, or we're going to do it the easy way, but we're going to do this. And God had to pry my hands off of that because what I understood after going through that was the only way I experienced healing was through forgiveness and surrender. It's the only way. It's the only way. Our unwillingness to forgive, our unwillingness to let go of stuff is the root of a lot of our pain. They hurt me, so it's okay if I hurt them. Folks, that's when marriages fail. That's when we self-medicate with drugs or alcohol or pornography. That's when we try and lose ourselves in seemingly innocent things like success, like stuff, like video games, like, like hobbies, when we lose ourselves in meaningless things. Letting go doesn't mean that what happened to you is okay. Letting go doesn't mean that you don't need to work through it. Letting go doesn't mean you, you don't need help. Letting go doesn't say that the other person wasn't wrong in what they did, but it means I'm giving up this anger. I'm giving up the control this thing has on my life. Joseph had a choice to make, and he chose freedom and surrender. One writer says it like this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. How do you forgive someone who hurt you deeply? How do you move past something that has defined your life for so long? How do you do that? When you came in, you should have found a card on your chair. A card that looks like this. What I want to challenge you to do is to take a moment and to think through, what's God asking you to let go of? What's God asking you to let go of? Maybe it's a hurt or an insult or a slight. Maybe it's a pain that's been part of your life for a long time. Maybe it's fear or anger, or maybe you carry rejection or shame with you. What is God asking you to let go of? And I'm going to give you a minute, and I want to ask if you to write it down. You don't have to write your name on it, but write it down. And I know some of you are thinking like, hey, I don't do participation things, and I get that, but what I'd ask is, this isn't between you and me. This is between you and God. What's God asking you to let go of? Take a moment and write it down on your card. Maybe it's something you've done. Maybe it's something that's been done to you. Maybe it's someone you have to forgive that you really don't want to. Someone who's hurt you. What's God asking you to let go of? When we stare at this card, 
we're reminded of what's happened, of how we've been heard, of the struggle to let go. We're reminded of that. And so you need to stop looking at this card. You need to stop looking at this card. So fold it up. Just fold it up and put it in your pocket. Put it in your purse. Actually, put it in your pocket or your purse. Take a moment. Do this with me. Something that you can stop looking at that and being obsessed with it. But you know what? No, actually, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. If we just put it in our pocket, that's not good enough because some of us are going to be tempted to dig that out and keep looking at it, right? Maybe it's in our pocket for now, but we're going to go home and we're going to pull it out. We're going to be reminded of it and we'll look at it over and over and over again. So take your card back out. Take your card back out and hold it up. Take your card. I want to see those cards. Nobody's going to walk out while I'm talking. (laughs) Tear it up. Tear it up. Tear it into pieces, right? Does that feel better? I bet it does, right? A little bit. Feels, feels good. So you got a pile of pieces, and that's better, but the problem is that's still not good enough because some of you have such a hard time letting go of that pain and that hurt and experience that you'll take this home and you'll try and piece it back together with scotch tape and glue that you'll want to remind yourself of this. You're drawn to it. You'll try and bring it back into your life. It's become such a part of you that you can't let it go, and so you need that thing gone. It needs to be gone. You can't carry it with you anymore. And so we're going to have people that are going to come around. They've got buckets. I want you to put it in the bucket. When you take a moment and physically, actually put it in the bucket and let go of it. For some of you, this may feel like a bit much, and I get that. But for some of you, I'm asking you to do the very thing you've been trying to do unsuccessfully for years. Folks, our lives are not defined by our worst moments, but by God's Best moments. Not defined by our worst moments, but God's best moments. Because when we think of that guilt and that shame that weighs on us, when we think of those things we've done, some of you are going, you don't know my history. You don't know my past. You don't know what I've done, how I've hurt people. You don't know me. And what I would say to you is, I don't need to, because God does. And the hope that he gives us is he knows our hearts and promises us freedom Romans 8, 1 to 2 says, So now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. What it's saying is it doesn't matter what you've done because God is bigger. It doesn't matter what you've done because God's love is richer. It doesn't matter because God, God's forgiveness can overcome and overwhelm that. We don't have to carry that because God says... Let me, let me take that. Now maybe you're more like Joseph and you're struggling to forgive. And you're wondering, how could I possibly do that? You don't know how much I've been hurt. You don't know what what someone has done to me. You don't know how much agony I've experienced. Well, I'd encourage you with the words of Colossians 3.13 that says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. How is that possible? Because remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And I would really say, the Lord forgave you, so you can forgive others. That we have hurt God and rebelled from God, that we've run from him, that we've said we don't need him, and yet God says, I love you, and has moved towards us through his son. That when we have been hurt and we struggle to let go, Jesus says, I hung on a cross for you. I experienced pain and agony that you'll never know and I did it for you. 
that we've been forgiven so richly so we can forgive others the same way. And you might be thinking, so what if I feel this way tomorrow or next week or next year? What do I do? And I'd say to you, that's a fair question. Do it again. Surrender again. Let it go again. Because we can continually come back to the God who picks this up and says, this is mine. It's not yours anymore. That's what Jesus is saying to us. This isn't yours anymore. Jesus bought this. He paid for it. The ownership has changed. It is not in your name anymore. It is in his. Stop looking at it. Stop going back to it. Stop holding on to it. Because when you trust in Jesus, he has paid for it. It's not yours anymore. It's not yours anymore. Jesus gives us that hope. And for some of you right now, that, you need that. All of us at some point in our life have needed to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of this. Those things I don't want to let go of. I can, even when it's incredibly painfully hard because not only have I been forgiven more than I can imagine, but God says, give it to me, let me carry it for you. Where do you struggle with guilt and shame? Where do you struggle with guilt and shame? What moment or action or behavior is poisoning you from the inside out? What I'd ask is, have you ever confessed that to God? That's a great starting point. The brothers lived under a cloud because they had never acknowledged this. You confess those things before the God that already knows them. Have you confessed to others? Have you apologized to others? That's a great starting point. We are bad culturally at being willing to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. We are bad at that. But there's so much freedom in that because, listen, it's, you don't need to convince other people you made a mistake. Psst, they already know. They already know. What would it take for you to be free from that? What would it take for you to lay that down, to let it go, to surrender those things to the God that already knows your most secret thoughts and loves you anyway? Because remember, forgiveness is often more for the one doing the forgiving than the one who's being forgiven. When we are willing to forgive, that's when we heal. What is God asking you to let go of? What hurt or experience or memory are you holding on to that you need to give up? No matter what you do, no matter what you try, you will never be able to erase that. Pretending it didn't happen doesn't make it go away. What makes it go away is giving up to the God who will bring healing into your life, the God who will make you whole. I love how this one writer says it. He says, when you forgive, you in no way change the past, but you sure do change the future. The hope that we have is so when we surrender these things to God, it doesn't whitewash what happened, but it does give us a brighter future. It gives us hope as we look to the God that loves us and makes us whole.